Hey, is this thing on? Lance, Nick, ready? Can you hear me? Welcome to the Live Free and Hunt podcast. Already, Live Free and Hunt podcast, episode 22, Eric Orff, episode 2. Um, we got back into the moose, picked up on the moose where we left off, and uh, we went into some uh, some trapping stuff. Um, I had a couple people write in asking questions or um, on deer populations in northern and southern. Is there less woods, more deer, more woods, less deer, how it all works? Um, we talked mountain lions in New Hampshire, and maybe we talked about a little bit Bigfoot. Alrighty, let's get it. You're like a bad deck of cards that loves to lose. You don't listen to me, and I don't want you to, cause we sure have fun. Throwing my money away You bet high, I bet low You're all in and I'm all broke Another paycheck down the drain um, We do have some, some feedback questions. Um, okay. I know we... You said, uh, you said you wanted to get into some meat and potatoes, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I gotta figure out what those are. <laughs> <laughs> No, um, I we left off on um, moose, and I did want to touch back on um, the the carrying of the ticks and when they drop, they drop when the ticks come in the winter time. The winter ticks. Yeah, they, they so, get on in no, typically November when it's cold. So what's called questing. So the baby moose hang out together. I mean, the baby ticks hang out together. And when one hangs on, grabs a moose as it walks by the shrub or bush that they happen to be on, they all get on. So, you know, unlike a, like a dog tick or, you know, a deer tick, when we're out there, we might get one or two or, or even three or four on us rarely, but occasionally. So they get on one at a time. Wood ticks get on by the hundreds or thousands. They're, they're, so they, they're so that it, small. Yeah, you know, by actual, yeah, they're the size of a, you know, the period at the end of a sentence or smaller. So they're very small. And uh, by actual count, you know, they'll take a moose and, you know, take a square foot of it and count the actual ticks. And so they've been well over 100,000 counted on a number of moose. So it's, they don't get on by the dozens, they get on by the tens or hundreds of thousands. And basically, for the adult moose, they can withstand those numbers to some degree. They certainly debilitates them, and it kills a few, but a very, you know, a smaller number. It's it's the calves that they whack, you know, the typical mortality the last decade or more has been, you know, closer to 50 to 70% most of those winters. And at, at that number of calves dying, and as I had mentioned in our last podcast, that uh, unfortunately because our summers are warmer, it is stressing the cow moose. And where when the moose study was happened in the 1980s, most females older than age three would have two calves each year, and now there's absolutely no twinning. And and back then, almost all the females older than age two had calves. 
but now, uh, you know, up to half of the moose don't even produce calves anymore because they're too stressed from the heat. They, they don't gain weight. They can't physically maintain a pregnancy. So uh, we are having, you know, way more calves dying and way fewer calves being born, which is uh, the, the death knell for our moose population. Is it they when you say like like twinning, they they could possibly try to carry in the uterus two yep. calves. There's just one doesn't make it. Uh, I, you know, I don't know whether uh, or it's just not whether happening. they conceive two or not. You know, I I don't know right. that answer. Okay, uh, I just think they're in such poor shape that you know a significant number can't even carry a calf, don't get pregnant, and then the ones that do, they only are able to give birth to one so what is that mechanism i actually don't know that part okay um is the the ticks that are killing the calves is it actually because of the ticks are taking so much is it a the disease like a lyme scenario for nope, them no it's strictly it's strictly they eat they take a blood meal you know they they all kind of gas up before they drop off in april so in april it's the the month of death for our moose calves they would have to resupply their blood supply every two weeks, and they cannot do that. So they literally wow. drain them. They drain the the moose's blood, and it and it kills them. So it, it, they are so debilitated that they can no longer walk or eat, and they simply drop dead. I think what we were talking about <clears throat> last night. My question was, why doesn't that same scenario happen with our deer population? Why does it affect the moose particularly? Yeah, deer, uh, for some reason, groom themselves of these ticks, so they remove them, and moose do not. It's just a whole, you know, it's a difference between the animals. Yes, they get on deer, but deer groom themselves and take them off, and, and moose do not. I wonder why they haven't learned some sort <laughs> Figure of... Figure that out. Yeah, yeah. you know, <clears throat> the evolution of I, things. You I would wish think they that... would. They should go to tick school or something. That's but, right. Uh, That's so right. far, it hasn't, and it's been... You know, and it's not just here in Maine, the same thing, Vermont, the same thing. Funny, about five or six years ago, when I uh, communicated with the, with the moose bi- biologist in Maine, John Cantor, oh, no, it's really, you know, our, our Maine moose, we're further north. Ours are doing really good. Well, fish, New Hampshire fishing game had at that point been into one or two years of this moose study where they actually hired some cowboys from, I think, uh, Wyoming or something they you know, fly in a helicopter and they fire a, a net over the moose and literally jump on it and knock it down so they're not tranquilizing them. Because when you tranquilize an animal, a wild animal, you lose a certain percentage. So that reduces the mortality factor of the capture and collaring part of, of studying a moose. So very few die. But they, you know, put mostly collars on cows and calves. And, uh, and that's how they did it. But, uh, once the study started in Maine, like, you know, a year or two after New Hampshire, when New Hampshire was finding these high mortality rates, Maine said, well, let's take a look at our moose. When the moose biologist, oh, no, that's not happening in Maine. Well, guess what? It was the same mortality rate. Right. It was. They just didn't realize it. So uh, so they have, as New Hampshire has ratcheted down our moose hunting permits, you'll notice that Maine has done the same thing because their moose population is in decline as well. Right. Damn. And Vermont, same thing. It is uh, like having a, a drought season, <clears throat> a drought season, or um, 
either a, a wet season. Does that did, and can you see any impact or any, anything like that? Just because I know no, they it, spend a lot of time it, in water. It certainly does with wood ticks and and uh, deer ticks. When we have a drought condition, the the ticks do not do well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this summer, you know, I noticed fewer ticks when I was out on my hikes and walks, and it was because of the drought. So ticks require a certain amount of soil moisture to thrive. Does that is is that the same thing with moose ticks? You know, I I would have to ask somebody that is more familiar with that. Okay. Uh, uh, I don't know that answer, but I can certainly Dan Bergeron, who uh, is the current deer project leader, uh, ran part of the moose study, and I bet a call to Dan would give us that answer. But uh, uh, as a rule, droughts are bad for ticks. Uh, so, and and maybe that's the case with winter ticks, moose ticks. Let's hope it is. But because uh, I think I heard a comment this fall during the moose hunting season, wherein, of course, all the moose are biologically checked. I think I heard that there were fewer ticks on the moose this fall than in some other year. So maybe the moose are having a good winter this winter. So, you know, they need it. But unfortunately, the good year is way outweighed by all the bad years. And it used to be one bad year and many good years. And now it's one good year and many bad years. So right. it's flip-flopped. Uh, it's just it's flip-flopped. Yep. How do they determine that? That the moose have less ticks? They comb them. They comb out the ticks, and it, like they'll take a, you know, a, a, you know they'll take a, a certain area, you know, like maybe a four inches by four inches on the moose hide, and comb it out and count the ticks. Wow, something like that. Wouldn't want to have that job. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> All right, <clears throat> we're gonna bounce around a little bit. I just wanted to uh, touch back on that moose. Um, I had someone message me, and um, they were talking about is there uh, less Less deer in northern New Hampshire at this point because of your tag regulations. So in some units, obviously, you can, you know, draw an L tag or an M tag. Or is there less woods in the same amount of deer down south, if that makes any sense? Uh, Population-wise. Yeah, the deer herd has certainly grown, you know, threefold in southern New Hampshire over the last 40 years. You know, the majority of our 100-plus thousand deer are certainly in the, you know, south of the White Mountains. In the north of the White Mountains, you, you know, most years there are no or very few either six days, antlers days, despite the fact that it's been that way for close to 30 years or maybe more now, you know, the deer herd has not bounced back. You know, may, in my mind, doubtful, but maybe, you know, some people think you know, coyotes, predators have a role in that, and maybe that's the case. Uh for whatever reason, they certainly are not the deer that were there back in the 40s and 50s uh, in, the, in the northern part of the state. Yeah. You know exactly why. I don't know if there's an answer to that, but they, I don't think the deer densities are as good as they were you know, 30 or 40 years ago. And, uh, and that has been more than made up by the number of deer that are in southern New Hampshire. Now, you know, if you look at the annual deer harvest report that comes out, I don't know if I got one in 2020 from Fish and Game. Uh, so they always summarize the deer kill by town and you, and by, and by, uh, kill per square mile. And if you look at, you know, Rye and Northampton and Southampton, those are the towns that typically there's a deer kill of like six per square mile, whereas Coas County, there might be one. Right. So, I think that was the kind of the, the, the question was when a, a biologist is estimating a deer population, is it, is it because 
does it seem like there's less deer? I know, I know you just answered that question, but their question was, does do they think or does it come out to that they think there's less deer in a more wooded area because there's less sightings than southern New Hampshire when you have probably smaller tracts of land and more sightings? Well, the sightings are, you know, based on 100 hours of hunting. So if you are, no matter where you hunt, it's how many deer did you see during that 100 hours that you were in the woods. Okay. So so it's irrelevant to where it is. Right. Or, or the habitat. You know, if you're hunting in where there's poor habitat, you're certainly going to see fewer deer. But, <laughs> right. you know, overall. Yeah. You, you know, can't across, hunt in the parking lot. <laughs> you know, overall across the state, you know, that would kind of even out. So it's it's basically you know, uh, an, uh, a way of kind of monitoring deer densities by hunter observations. Okay. And so this is another one is, um, the, like the form that you, if you're a successful hunter, you'll get a form saying, did you see, uh, a bobcat or, or did you see this? How many deer did you see? Yep. <clears throat> how much, how important does that form play for a biologist when they get those back at the end of the well, year? Yeah, that's all valuable information. You know, every five or ten years, I think it's ten. Five, I think every five years, New Hampshire fishing game undergoes a new a new management plan. So those figures uh, kind of go into that plan. So by knowing the density of deer in various WMUs, wildlife management units, that's how the biologist, the deer biologist, calculates how many either six days should be in that particular unit. Okay. And of course, they're often lumped together, and like in Zone M, uh, where the the uh, where the deer densities are higher than what uh, it's not just fishing in that wants us because every five years when they do a plan, you know, it's that you know five o'clock call during the dinner time you get, and there's somebody asking you questions. So you know, there actually are people uh, that that do the surveys and ask people, well, do you want the same number of deer? around where you live do you want fewer deer do you want more deer more deer moose more bears so every five years there's a whole assessment plus there are public meetings to garner public support or public opinion at the public meetings as well so and then they set goals so in wildlife management m you know the folks say well we want you know we don't want any more moose and we think there's too many deer too so uh there would be a goal set of uh, how many uh, what the dense of deer that that fishing game would like to achieve through the season. So each of the wildlife management units has a goal in mind that's measured every year by uh, the, the number of deer taken plus observations. So it's a whole formula that helps track deer densities and how is that density in relation to what the people who live there would like to have. Huh. So it's a balance. That's interesting, yeah. Do you find that you get a lot of response from those forms when they're sent out? You know, I I don't work at fishing anymore. Let's hope they do. I <laughs> I don't know that answer. I wonder uh, if people realize. Yeah, and I try to send mine in. Right. How much information they're actually yeah. providing and how it can yep. help if yep. they take the time to fill them out. Yep, comes right from the hunters themselves. So if they want, you know, fishing game to do the best job they can. They need to participate. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I want to get into. I know you said you're a fur bearer. Uh, is that that's a, you, you started then, right? As a, uh, nesting boxes, yep. Yeah. And then uh, fur fur bearer um, biologist. Oh yeah, I was the fur bearer biologist from 
around 1980 until I retired in 07. So, yeah, 20-something 20, 20 years, 27 years. I just want to know if you can go into some history of trapping in uh, New Hampshire because I feel like it's been a a lost art and a lost... It's one of the first things that people attack besides bear baiting or hunting with hounds, maybe. But um, I think it has a pretty rich history in the Northeast. Um can you go into a little bit of the history of um, trapping in New Hampshire? Sure. Well, we could go back. I was just reading something the other day that, uh, you know, the uh, there were people trading with the Native Americans out at the Isles of Shoals in the early uh, mid 1500s. So, you know, 1492, Columbus <laughs> discovered the New World. Well, within 50 years, there were people from Europe trading with Native Americans for furs here in New England off the New Hampshire coast. And, you know, all the first settlements, uh, the first uh, occupations were fur trading posts with the Native Americans. And, of course, then uh, the Europeans began trapping as well in the probably in the late 1500s or early 1600s. And uh, it was the trappers that actually led the way across the country. So it wasn't just New Hampshire. It started on the East Coast and went to the West Coast over the next 150 years. So trapping is part of what uh, how we how we became here, how we got here, were the trappers leading the way and, uh, you know, and, and charting the trails and, and learning and trading with the native people and, and uh, you know, learning how to get around and mapping things. So that was all pretty much done by trappers in the 15 and 1600s. And, you know, the, we really weren't settled in any numbers until into the 1700s here in New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, by the you know by the mid 1700s, the trappers had done a pretty good job, and many things were very much diminished. Yeah. So by the early 1800s, you know, the beavers were way down, and most animals. And you know, eight, as I'd mentioned, 1820, uh, they figured there was a million sheep in New Hampshire. So all these stone walls we see were sheep pastures. So our forests were large, largely gone. So uh, in central and southern New Hampshire, south of the White Mountains. There just weren't that many trees left, or probably not a lot of forests where things could hide. So, you know, animals were way down by the uh, middle of the 1800s and uh, didn't really come back until in the 1900s. It blows my mind. <clears throat> you just mentioned stone walls, and it all kind of came together for me because you can be miles and miles and miles in the woods where you probably think to yourself, no one's ever been out here. <clears throat> I'm probably the first person <laughs> to ever step on this, you know, on this. Yeah. There's a stone wall there. Yeah, you know, somebody lived there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You come across these old, old uh, like homesteads, and I'm just yeah. the people that made those stone walls. There must have been some. So you know, there were in the end of the '60s and '70s, there were upwards of a thousand trappers in New Hampshire. By uh, you know, and it really it, it peaked in the late '70s, and, and the fur was a lot in 1979. That particular year, fur prices were up. Like you could get two hundred dollars for for a fisher pelt, a female fisher wow. pelt. Wow! Beavers were like sixty or seventy dollars. So that year, uh, you know, all licensed fur buyers in New Hampshire must provide fishing game. Me as a fur bear biologist with their with their annual catch of you know what they bought of fur and what they paid for it, and then we use that number to uh, combine that with the New Hampshire. New Hampshire's trap report. So every licensed trapper, in order to be a licensed trapper, you must submit an annual report of what you caught by town. And that has been that way since the late 60s. So I would just, you know, multiply the number of animals that I know were caught based on these reports with the average 
price per pelt that the fur buyers were paying. And in 1979, that came into at three quarters of a million dollars. Wow. Wow. Like $750,000. Beavers, that year, over 6,000 beavers were trapped in New Hampshire. And they were worth, you know, between sixty and hundred dollars a pelt. Well, of course, now with fur prices the way they've been the last decade or more, that value is closer to thirty or forty thousand. What, what drove that the fur market down? What was it? Like a certain cyclical. thing. You can look into the sixteen hundreds. You know, it goes up and down. It's fashions. It's world economy, and and now it probably is some social yeah. restrictions. Uh, so. It has oscillated up and down over and over again over the last 300 years. So it's a normal thing to happen. The economies go up and down of different countries. You know, for a while it was the, the Chinese or the Koreans were buying a lot of the fur. And it was the Russians for a while. So it really, it, it changes from year to year. And, and, you know, right now, the last few years, fur prices have been way down. As You know, if you know anything about trapping, you know, the, yeah. the values have been way down. So. And they're not trapping 6,000 beaver. They're trapping a couple thousand, maybe. And probably today, there are more beavers taken as nuisance animals than that are trapped during the season for their fur. That'd be a, a, that would be a reasonable guess in my mind. No, yeah, that's, I feel like that's right. All right, so I got um, – this is kind of a tinfoil hat question, so if you want to put that on. Um, okay. <laughs> mountain lions in New Hampshire. Okay. Um, yeah. I just did a YouTube on that a couple of weeks ago. I went down to the Woodman Museum in, in Dover, and the last time I was there was in the 70s, But I, and they had the very last mountain lion killed in New Hampshire in 1853 in the town of Lee. It was a big male weighing 198 pounds with seven and a half feet long. Wow. So that mount is still there. I would recommend if you want to see a New Hampshire mountain lion, go to the Woodman Museum. Now it's 160, 70 years old. So it's you know it's it's seen a better day, but it's still there, and uh, uh, basically, you know, as the fur bear biologist Henry Laramie, my supervisor, in around 1980 when I became the fur bear biologist, he lugged out of his office this big folder. Well, it was the mountain lion folder that he oh, had. They had the own, they ever, it, the mountain lions had their own folder. Yep, they had a folder that dated back into the it, at least into the 40s, if not before that. Wow, of sightings and, and reports. So, you know, as a good, uh, as a good uh, administrator, uh, actually, Chris Ryan said, well, you know, we, we really need to have a form. So when somebody calls the fishing game office, we can record the data because I had just been putting it on a piece of paper. So we came up with a mountain lion form. So and then about that time, we regionalized. So we had the office in Lancaster, Region 1 and Region 4 in Keene and Region 2 in New Hampton. And I, I happened to go to Region 3 in Durham. And of course, headquarters. So there were, you know, four different offices that had the forms in some years, and they would all be sent to me. So it was, you know, the name of the person, their, you know, their contact information, exactly where it was, when it happened, and then we had, you know, a very good description. Oh, how big was the head? What did the ears look like? Was what did the tail look like? What color it was? So very descriptive uh, information on these forms that all came to me. And if it came to me within a day or two, something hot, I, I think once or twice I went, you know, to the scene. What was I going to find? I don't know. But I was hoping to find a needle in a haystack <laughs> yeah. because, you know, someone saw a mountain lion run across this section of road the day before. So I was hoping to find a track or something. And, and I'm sure some other staff have done the same thing over the year. But, you know, we never 
we never got any information that was would be credible in court. You know, there was never a picture or a cast of a track. There was a deer hunter over in uh, Region 4, over in Ted Walski's area, that saw a mountain lion defecate, and he collected the scat. And Ted Walski got it, got it to me, and I sent it to, I think it was Virginia Tech at the time, was doing some DNA work. So I sent it to them, and it cost fishing game $100, and it came back that that mountain lion dropped on the forest floor a bobcat scat. Oh. Um, just a long-tailed so, bobcat yeah it was it was not like we didn't try i mean if there was something evidence that was you know p- possible we gave it a shot why not and you know now i think with hundreds if not thousands of game cameras everywhere through new hampshire that's my argument you know, yeah. that we should be seeing them and i mean yes you know was it a decade ago somewhere i've got actually i've got the uh i've got the news clipping about uh I just found it the other day. Maybe it was less than a decade ago, the one that was uh, that was run over in Connecticut. Yeah, I was going to say some. I uh, know a cat got hit on the highway. <laughs> okay. Well, I clipped the news clipping. It was uh, seven twenty-eight was the of twenty eleven. So, uh, so just under uh, a decade ago, that one was hit on a highway in Connecticut, and basically from. The DNA of that cat, and also they collected scats from that cat as it moved across the country. So they know it came from like, you know, South Dakota, and it spent some time in whatever Wisconsin and then Minnesota. That or, is a trek. You know, it was actually you know they were able to track that cat as it moved from the Midwest uh, to Connecticut, where it got killed. So is it impossible? Absolutely. There's an example. These animals. And wolves, too, move great distances. So could somebody see one here? Absolutely. There's no question that, you know, it's it's they might not be seen. I mean, I, I have dealt with wildlife for long enough to know that nothing's impossible when it comes to wildlife. They move big distances. Uh, you know, Arctic terns move from the North Pole to the South Pole. So there's a bird that flies from one pole to the other. So right, these, right. these animals and coyotes can move big distances. And certainly mountain lions could. Could someone, Could the mountain lion show up in New Hampshire? Absolutely. Do we have a breeding population? Absolutely not. Uh, I, I I fantasize about the wolf, the wolf issue, too, because I don't know if you keep up with what's happening out west with the wolves, reintroducing wolves and, and not. Well, yeah, that happened a while ago. But, you know, here in the northeast, our wolves are at our doorstep. You know, I... As the fur bear biologist for you know close to thirty years at Fishing Game, we had an annual fur bear meeting called the Fur Bear Technical Committee of East Coast biologists, basically from Virginia North, including the Eastern Canadian provinces. So we met annually, and each state or province would host it. You know, their turn every few years, and I hosted it once here in New Hampshire. So there were about I would say fifteen or twenty of us that met regularly. And if you talk to the fur bear biologists from Quebec, uh, you know, there's a lot of moose north of the St. Lawrence, but there are very few south. It's because Canada Canada doesn't want them in the south where their deer herd is and it's where their agriculture is. And they they very, they they trap and kill like 4,000 a year north of the St. Lawrence. So they don't want them south of the river. Some do get south, and they kill them when they can. Mm-hmm. But uh, there certainly had been evidence that there have been wolves, you know, very close to the United States uh, and New York and Minnesota. I mean, Minnesota has them, 
but in Maine, I think just last year, they've been some, some, uh, some positive in, uh, results of tests on wolf uh, evidence in Maine within the last year or so. So, you know, I always figured, you know, <laughs> you know, we got, you know, several thousand moose, you know, a hundred thousand deer, you know, more, more beavers that we've ever had. And we're 80 something percent forested. So we've set the dinner table. We've given them the habitat. So come on in. <clears throat> they, yeah. they just need to run the gauntlet from the north side of the St. Lawrence River to the New Hampshire, Maine, New York, Vermont border. And they're here. Right. So they're they are close at hand. And, and I, you know, always had the sense that they would return uh, within some reasonable time. And I still think they might. But uh, there's never been any any effort to reintroduce them here that I know of. And uh, certainly not on the agenda of any wildlife agency I'm, I'm, I know of here in the right, Northeast, yeah. but you know, I, they move big distances. They run the gauntlet and eventually somebody's going to make it. Yeah. it. It will happen. Okay. I just don't know when that is. Last tinfoil hat question for you. Have you ever had any, uh, Bigfoot calls? <laughs> <laughs> Only one. Really? I did. Yeah, no it was way. The, it was the it was the police chief of a town. Well, I'll say the town of Bosquin. It was in the early '80s, and that was my one and only uh, Sasquatch call. <laughs> not, not a whole lot. Now, of I did have a call from a you know a shark attacking somebody, a lady in Nashville. She was on the toilet, and I was not inclined to get out and look for that evidence. What? <laughs> 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 And there was the purple snake that was uh, biting the young lady in the upper inner thigh that wanted me to come look at. Oh, wow. Oh my gosh. Didn't do that one either. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, uh, the, the, you know, so tin, fat, tin hat calls, I got a lot of those, too. I, I seem to be the default one when I was at fishing game. Yeah, I'm going to call uh, for you. I think I was the fur bear biologist. I, I got the strange calls would just be directed to me. So I, I got a lot of crazy calls. That's awesome. All right, we're at 40 minutes, and uh, we're going to eat some dinner here shortly. Um, <laughs> I just want you to revisit or retouch on, um, give your plug for the New Hampshire Wildlife Federation and where people can reach you. Yeah, well, of course, uh, the New Hampshire Wildlife Federation is made up of about 50 sporting clubs around the state, and I hope you are a member. If you're not, I'm going to make sure I send you an application. Absolutely. You if you're not, and I would ask that your, your, your followers – become a member because uh, you know it's this time of year that the federation is up on the hill you know supporting legislation that's going to benefit our hunters fishermen and trappers and land conservation public access to that land and to our streams and rivers it's an ongoing battle every year that has been waged by the federation for 80 years now and you know and the federation is the it's the spokesperson for the New Hampshire sportsman across the state and has been for a long time so yeah become a member and of course i do a weekly uh uh a video uh, for the new hampshire federation uh federation on their facebook every monday or tuesday mid-morning or late morning we do a video every week on what's going on and what are the issues we should be talking about so it's whatever you know whatever is needs to be addressed or any fun thing i want to mention and of course, I've got my YouTube channel that I started in May of 2019. So I've got a, I think over 200 videos up there. And you know, if you if you uh, want to learn what it was like to catch a moose or catch some deer, 
uh, or, or bears or all the other things. Uh, certainly talk about those. And uh, the best way to get there is to go to my website where uh, I've had for almost 20 years now, nhfishandwildlife.com. So there's a button there to click on my uh, my weekly blog that I've been doing since July of 04. You know, what's out, you know, what's going on in New Hampshire and, my, of course, my YouTube channel. So, yeah, those are other places you can get some more entertainment and uh, and some fun facts on those as well. So, yeah, there's uh, I, I try to I try to I've been retired a long time now, but I, I, I was in just going to say, I, I thought I you to, retired. Yeah, I try to keep one paddle in the in the water. <laughs> <laughs> it's It's been a good gig. You know, a lot of you, I was looking at some of your uh, things, and I noticed a lot of them are deer hunters, of course, probably to follow you. So I thought I'd, I'd come up with a couple of deer stories tonight before we wrap. Absolutely, yes. All right. So this one happened in uh, November 10th, 1983. So 1983, I was tasked with Henry Laramie to remove deer from Long Island, Winnipesaukee. The deer had become overpopulated with the island had become overpopulated with deer, and I had actually participated in a couple of censuses where we, where we walked lines and, and counted all the deers, deer on Long Island. Well, this particular night, we had some traps called clover traps. So they're kind of big hot traps for deer that we'd borrowed from Vermont. So uh, when I'm doing work like that, I pretty much can't sleep. So I, I was alone in the fishing game trailer on Long Island, and I had some spare, I think they were bear collars or bobcat collars. I can't remember which. But for a radio caller, if you own a dog that has a call or a radio call, you know, you, you put a magnet on to turn it off and you take the magnet off to, to turn it on. So they, so I hooked these clover traps, these basically have a hot traps for deer. I hooked them with the radio collar so that when the date went down, it pulled the magnet off and it would begin uh, broadcasting in the trailer where I was trying to get some sleep. So I think I went to bed around midnight that night, it says here, and at 2 a.m., one of the cages went off. And uh, on this particular cage, I'd already caught a couple of raccoons because we used <laughs> apples for bait. Well, I was alone, and when I, as I approached the trap, I could realize there was a 10-point buck in it. No. And boy, was he upset as I approached. <laughs> and you know, I'm trying to get a needle out of my pocket and where the drug was, and I was trying to figure a way to tranquilize this, this deer. But he was, that trap was jumping up in the air, and I was trying to hold it down, and Eventually, he put his antlers down and ripped the end of the trap, went out right off, and away he went. So that big buck I didn't get. Uh, <laughs> so that happened the night of, that was Thursday, November 10th, 1983. So over a 10-day or two-week period, we actually captured 25 deer on Long Island and removed them. Wow. And uh, Including one that I rode. If you want to hear the story, the high old white tail away. <laughs> I wrote a story about it years ago, and it's also on my YouTube channel. So <laughs> jump over to my YouTube channel if you want to hear the story about Orf riding the big buck, the 200-pound-plus buck, down a hill at a very high rate of speed. I can tell you that. And when they talk about your, your life kind of flashing before your eyes. You saw it, huh? That happened to me. Yes, yeah. it did. It was my life and the trees and big boulders. So, uh, yeah, uh, riding a buck is not recommended. I that still have the antlers in my garage that I've actually rattled a couple of bucks in with. But oh, I, awesome. But I was, I was, I made the wrong moves and I didn't get them, but I, I rattled them in. <laughs> so, Excellent. I still got those antlers. Uh, here's one here, another one. 
Oh, yeah, this is the night. Uh, it was a night or two later. Let's see. Oh, a night later, the 11th. Uh, so we had, I tranquilized, we, at this point, we weren't just using the traps. We actually had tranquilizers, darts for our, our dart guns. Mm-hmm. So we'd go right around that. And talk about a good gig. So at this time, we had some COs working with us. Dave Hewitt was, I think, the maybe the chief or the, you know, the lieutenant in that area. So I, I used to ride around with Dave Hewitt. Back then they had, I think, Crown Vicks or something like a big, a big old car. And I had the back seat and he had the spotlight. So we drove around Long Island. So talk about pretty good duty. <laughs> yeah. Drive around with a game warden at the, at the wheel with a spotlight. Shooting at I'm, night. I'm, Here I'm we go. You're out of the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> kind of hard to beat. Yeah. Well, this particular deer, we put a dart in, but it got away. And then I went back out a couple hours later. Everybody else had left. And I, I said that I at uh, 1.30 a.m., I went back out and found the deer that was down. And I was able to jump on it and hog tie it. It bladdered the whole time. And the other part of the story is uh, when Chuck Kenny, the CO, arrived at around 6 to, you know, get to see how things went, I said, well, I got some good news, Chuck, and some bad news. The good news is I got the deer. The bad news, I had lost the director's brand new, brand new walkie-talkie. Oh, boy. <laughs> it was in my pocket when I was fighting the deer. I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> But I went back out later and, you know, did find it, luckily. So <laughs> he was more worried about that than any deer we might catch. That, that they, they had loaned me the director's brand new radio on the very first night I lost it. Yeah. <laughs> first thing they said, do not lose this. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have uh, uh, diaries from the day I started there. And I have, you know, diaries full of stories like that that I enjoy looking back at now and then. And a lot of them I've talked about, some of those on my YouTube channel, you know. Uh, I'll flip open if it's, you know, October 10th, I'll look at my diaries from the last 30 years or, you know, back when I was working for Fishing Game and find out a, 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 a interesting story about that time. So kind of what I actually started out doing on my YouTube channel was bringing some of these uh, nights or days back to back to life. It's pretty incredible that, I mean, just to keep a diary for that long, that's yeah. some discipline and... You started that when you started working for Fishing Game? I did. You know, they handed me one to keep my hours so I could accurately record my hours on the timesheets and uh you know i i don't know why i didn't do one sooner because and i used to keep records of like in my teen years you know when i saw the last woodchuck in the fall when i saw the first one in the spring so i i kept notes on nature for a long time before this but this uh gave me a chance to really uh you know write things down that i did every day you know who was there and who i was working with and what happened and yeah you know i caught you know over 40 moose I handled over my career, dozens of bear, thousands of ducks and geese, uh, lots of turkeys. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm lucky to have these diaries that are filled with stories uh, that bring me back to that moment in time. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, Eric, I appreciate everything you've done for New Hampshire and for wildlife. It's, uh, it's pretty incredible hearing these stories, and um, someday we'll, we'll get together and maybe <laughs> – Towards turkey season, maybe we'll have you back on and we can talk some turkey. Sure, sure. But, um, yeah, so I appreciate it. Thank you. Always a good time. Nice to meet you, Kat. Nice, nice to meet you. Thanks a lot. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> keep let's on keep... keeping on. Yes, let's keep let's in touch. together. Join the Federation. Speak up. Be a part of it. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. In my pocket with some living 
So bad, so bad for me 